This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is David Giard. How Hi, you doing, Ed. David? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Excellent. Uh, so, David, you're a senior technical evangelist for Microsoft. Why don't you give us a little bit of uh, background about what that is and, and what you do? Uh, technical evangelist is the coolest job in the world. <laughs> As you know, because you're an advocate for Telerik, um, I get to play with toys all day, learn how to use software, and then teach that to others, uh, get people excited about technology. And I, I travel around a lot, speaking at conferences, I do a lot of writing, a lot of screencasting, I interview smart people like you, and um, I uh, just, I, I really enjoy it. Best job I've ever had. Yeah, it's fun to be able to turn the tables a little bit. I was on your show, Technology and Friends, uh, a few years ago. I know it's so, been too long. I need to get you back on my show. Absolutely. I'm sure uh, with both of us being developer advocates or evangelists, we will cross paths eventually. Uh, I'm assuming from our conversations that we had before, it'll be at Star Trek this year. I'm waiting to hear from Star Trek. I've submitted, um, and I've been there in the past. It's a great conference. Yeah, it's an excellent conference. I hope to get picked as well. I've submitted. Uh, we'll probably be sponsoring in as we usually do. And uh, what's the movie this year at Star Trek? Uh, it is Guardians of the Galaxy two. So oh, I, if I better hurry up and watch Guardians of the Galaxy one then. <laughs> yeah. So if you're if you're anywhere around the Ohio area, uh, look for a conference called Star Trek. It's a conference that is um, kind of centralized around the latest movie release. So you get to spend the first uh, eight hours of your day at the conference listening to awesome speakers talk about whatever they're passionate about and uh, application development and web development and data science, you name it. And then afterwards, you're treated to the latest release of whatever the big movie is. And in the past, that has been the Marvel Universe uh, for the most part. Yeah, um, and, and think, Star Trek, of course. Yeah, I think Star Trek was the inaugural event, right. uh, which it got its name from. And then um, I think there may have been one other uh, Star Trek movie, and then it started going Marvel because that was just happened to coincide with what was coming out. Right. So this year we get uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and um, it's a really fun event because they, they brand a lot of stuff around the movie and – it just makes it a really enjoyable experience for everybody. So if you're in the Ohio area or nearby, um, I drive up from Louisville, Kentucky. It's a couple hours drive, and it's it's well worth it. Yeah. Uh, it's also fun to get, see your slides and your demos up on a gigantic movie screen. It's yeah, a absolutely. Bit empowering. And <laughs> yeah, a little change this year. So they, they actually won't be at a movie theater this year. What? Really? Uh, yeah. I didn't yeah, know So that. They, they outgrew the movie venue, and they will be – in uh stadium i think it's the uh the college stadium that's up there i can't remember which one it is i'm sure i'll, I'll get some hate mail on that one but Wait, the ohio, uh, whatever the big the college ohio, team is, ohio state football stadium i believe it's that one yeah i'm really bad at sports stuff so i'm assuming <laughs> you're correct right. well, um, there's, a few, there's a few colleges but uh ohio state's by far the biggest one in town 
Yeah, so they'll they'll be up there. I think they're going to try to recreate the stadium or the yeah, well, stadium seating, of course, but the uh, theater style um, of experience with the the uh, stadium seating and the actual uh, sports stadium this time. Wow. Um, so hopefully that's uh, a good experience as it was before. Uh, but they had to do something because they were just getting way too big for the movie theater, which mm. is a good problem to have, I suppose. Yeah, now I really hope I go. It's, it sounds like it's going to be a, a completely different experience. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same same folks that have been running it, and uh, you know, I'm sure they've they've done an excellent job in the past. So I don't have any doubts that they'll do an ex- excellent job again. I hope they appreciate this commercial. I hope so. Yeah, we have to send them a. Uh, an invoice for that one. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, no, they're they're good guys. I'm glad to uh, share the word on on their awesome event. Uh, so uh, let's let's get back to you, David. What have you been working on lately? Uh, you know, I've been playing around a lot with Microsoft Cognitive Services, which is a lot of fun, and I'm I'm talking about it a lot. In fact, I'm going to be in Louisville at your user group next month doing a talk on cognitive services. Yeah, so I run the uh, uh, .NET Louisville uh, meetup uh, with a fellow named Chad Green. Uh, he also runs uh, Codepalooza, another great conference that's Agreed. up here in the Midwest. Um, and you're going to come down and talk to us about cognitive services. Um, is this something that's uh, similar to like Azure Machine Learning? And how does this work? Yeah, it's related to Azure Machine Learning. So if um, if you've done any machine learning, then you know that Machine learning tends to be complex. It tends to be hard. I mean, the, first of all, the idea behind machine learning is that we we take lots of data and we apply these algorithms to it to try and figure out how are these properties of the data related to those properties of the data. Um, and we do this kind of through experience, through iteratively crunching through the data, taking taking guesses about how the um, how the data is modeled testing those guesses and then based on the results refining our guess and then running through a, a, a modified algorithm um, so this is uh, this is different from just you know applying a formula to a set of data this is more iterative and it tends to take a lot of compute power and a lot of time and a lot of data which most of us don't have any of those things but Microsoft does Microsoft has Azure. Azure is this cloud computing platform which is deployed on many thousands of computers all over the world. And so what what Azure does with machine learning is it allows you to scale out your, your, your services so that if you wanted to run these algorithms, this, do this number crunching, you can do so on multiple machines running in parallel and actually get this done in a reasonable amount of, amount of time. So that's machine learning in a nutshell. Um, there are tools in Azure most notably ML Studio, which will make that easier. For example, there's a graphical design surface that lets you drag and drop components and workflows onto it. And that includes tools to uh, do things like uh, point to your data sources, maybe maybe clean up your data source, uh, because you have to figure out what to do. You know, data tends to be incomplete, and you need to decide, what do I do with empty values? What do I do with invalid data? What do I do with... Um, um, data that's uh, that's corrupted, or uh, the you can handle that stuff declaratively rather than writing a lot of code for it. You know, splitting up your test data versus your predictive data, things like that. That's that's taken care of for you graphically. I, I call that the plumbing 
part of any application. The stuff that uh, is really common that lots of different machine learning solutions have to be involved in, it's done without writing a lot of code. So then you can focus your time and your coding efforts on uh, you know, the things that are specific to your machine learning problem. So that yeah. those are those are tools that make it easier to do machine learning, but they don't make it easy. You still have to understand machine learning. You still have to understand the concepts of it. You have to know which algorithms to apply and what to, what your data looks like, things like that. Yeah, it's actually a coincidence. I didn't plan to learn Azure Machine Learning, but I've been looking at it for the last few days this week. Um, actually, starting out Monday and working through some of the tutorials that are available in the machine learning library. And I have to say, I'm really impressed, um, you know, knowing nothing going in Monday morning and it now being Wednesday, and I have a predictive model already built um, using some sample data that I got out of one of the projects. Uh, I have to say that the Azure Machine Learning Studio is pretty intuitive for me to be able to do that, knowing nothing about you know how this works, and uh, you know being a fluent with it uh, within just a couple days. Yeah, the the ML Studio it does make it a lot easier, uh, but but still there's still a lot of work involved. What? But I guess cognitive being a data scientist is actually yeah, the hard part. Yeah, data science is a big field, and it's worth an investment to look into it. It's a, there's a lot of jobs out there. You can make a lot of money doing it. You can solve a lot of real world problems doing that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of oh. Uh, uh, you could, for example, figure out what are the predictors in a population of um, the likelihood of getting certain diseases. Maybe you want to know, you know, what are the likelihoods that somebody is going to get skin cancer and look at factors like age and uh, where they live and uh, who their parents are, maybe ethnicity, maybe uh, their diet. If you could look at some of those, that, those factors, probably a lot of those things correlate to the likelihood that they're going to get skin cancer, you know, which ones correlate most strongly and how do they correlate? Things like that. Um, now, now what, uh, what cognitive services does is that makes it even easier. It makes you, it allows you to tap into machine learning that's already been done for you simply by making a web service call. So it, it tends to focus on three major areas, image processing or image and video processing, text processing, and voice processing. What cognitive services does is it uh, it abstracts away the complexities of machine learning, so that you can take advantage of machine learning that somebody else has done, and it it really focuses on uh, image and video processing, voice processing, language processing, and then some of the features that are built into Bing, like uh, Bing Search, for example. Uh, and, and you could do this just simply by calling a web service. And sending it a picture, you can get back uh, a description of what's in that picture and keywords about it and information about that picture. Because somewhere on the back end, somebody has taken lots and lots of pictures, and they've uh, they, uh, so now this machine learning engine is able to do this predictive analysis. That says it knows what does a picture of a dog look like. It knows what does a picture of a tree look like. Uh, it even knows what does a picture of uh, a person looks like, or even it can recognize people. It can recognize uh, where their eyes, nose, mouth are. It can recognize whether they're happy or sad or angry, uh, whether their head is tilted, whether they have glasses or, or facial hair. Um, if it knows, if it's already looked at people, like, like, like there's a lot of celebrities that it's looked through, it can match to celebrities. If you add your own 
faces to a database, it can match to you. So you could do authentication. Uh, you know, when you're login screen, you could have before you log in, just take a picture of yourself and use that as your authentication, things like that. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that some of this technology is probably forked or reused in uh, OneDrive in some way, uh, because when you upload f pictures into OneDrive without any intervention on your part, um, it's able to understand like which of your photos are people and stuff like that. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I actually use OneDrive, but I don't. I don't look at that aspect of it. Um, so yeah, probably under the hood, they're both calling. They're both tapping into the same machine learning that's been done. That uh, you know these thousands and thousands of pictures of people then it knows what a person looks like. You know, it knows whether this person there knows whether there's one person or five people in there. Um, but these services take it a step further. You can, for example, the emotion analysis is really nice. You can take a look at a picture and say, are they, I think there's eight different emotions. Are they happy, sad, angry, surprised, disgusted? Um, I forgot what the other three are. But the, for each one of those, it gives you a score from zero to one, closer to one, the more likely it thinks that you are experiencing that emotion in that photograph. Um, and it's even an array of faces. So if there's 10 people in the photo, it'll show an array of 10 different faces and the coordinates of the outline of that face. And for each one, it'll give uh, eight scores um, to indicate whether it thinks you're you know, happy, sad, whatever. Um, and this is, this is useful. I mean, you can think of applications for this. Like uh, if you wanted to do some, let's say you had a, a booth at a trade show and you're showing a video to people and in real time you want to just capture whether, how do they respond to the video? Are they laughing at the spots you expect them to be laughing? Are they, are they saddened by the parts you expect them to be saddened by? Uh, are they surprised when you show your big product reveal? Uh, that'd be useful information to, to say, you know, maybe you want to refine the video if they're not getting the reactions you're expecting. Maybe coming off a ride in an amusement park, you want to get take. They're already taking pictures of people, of course, to sell to them in the shop afterwards. Maybe you want to see: are, Do they look like they had fun on the ride at the amusement park? Well, you could take their picture and have some uh, service going through and saying how many people were smiling when they got off that ride. So another feature I've seen in OneDrive, and maybe you can tell me if there's a similar service in cognitive services, is uh, when you upload a photo. It can recognize uh, text in the background, so it'll OCR things yep. um, like signage that's in the background of your photo. So that makes it searchable by text later on. Absolutely. There is a, uh, as part of the computer vision API, there is optical character recognition. And it can uh, detect, uh, it basically returns an array of words, um, an array of words within an array of lines within an array of regions of text. Uh, and it can, uh, you can do with that what you will, even tell you exactly where each word is. So if you want to do something like, I don't know, uh, every time you see one word, replace it with another one, you could do something like that. So the uses for a technology like this are pretty limitless. Um, if you have a device that's constantly taking pictures of your surroundings, um, it can give you a lot of information that you might not be able to pick up on your own, especially if you have visual impairments or some other forms of uh, accessibility needs. Uh, absolutely. In fact, there's a really good video. I think it was shown at Build last year. Um, I'll send you a link to it if you want to put it in the show notes. But there is an engineer at Microsoft who is legally blind. He's been blind since he was a child. And he has this piece of hardware that looks like glasses on his face. And it has a camera inside of it. 
and it will do things like uh, tell him what he's looking at. He'll, he'll point it, and it's at uh, as an example where he looks at a skateboarder and it touches the device and says it looks like there's a man riding a skateboard. He'll go. Um, he's got a, a software on his phone. He'll point it at the menu in the restaurant. It'll read the menu to him. It'll read the headings and the subheadings of the menu. Uh, he'll if he's sitting in a meeting, it'll tell him who's sitting in front of them. And what their expression? Do they look like they're happy? Do they look like they're surprised? Uh, so we can get some feedback, which is hard to do. We get so much feedback visually. Um, this is this is just a great case study of how this this technology can really change people's lives. It can really change the world. You're really just limited by your imagination. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is enabling some really cool tech. Um, I saw that Microsoft just released some UX guidelines this week. And those guidelines helped with um, different, you know, putting different context behind uh, UX situations. Um, for example, we, we talked about uh, visual impairment. Well, you know, you may be in a situation where the context isn't that you're visually impaired, but right. you may need something like this. Let's say if you're in another country and uh, you're trying to read some signage or a menu, and it's in a different language. Yeah, so there's some translation services built in there. You could combine together the the optical character recognition with some translation services. I think there's about uh, in the OCR. I think it's like 20 languages that are supported, something like that, and that's growing all the time. Um, here's another good case study: is um, Uber is using this technology, their their face recognition technology. Uh, before a driver is allowed to start his shift, he has to log into this mobile app. Um, that's that's where he that's how he gets his customer. How he knows that you've called for an Uber ride, uh, but he can't use it until he's logged in. And the way that he logs in is by taking a picture of himself, and that matches to a picture in the database. And if it doesn't match, then he's not allowed to start his shift. He can't. He won't get paid for you know. He won't get sent, sent any rides. And this is um, this is a security feature. This is the. Um, uh, it prevents somebody from just applying one time because they do background checks and then handing their phone to their cousin and saying, hey, um, I'm tired. You work my shift today. Well, that, that's a problem. You know, the, his cousin never had a background check. He hasn't been vetted. So there's a risk there. You know, you think that John is going to pick you up and now Mary is picking you up. Uh, we don't know anything about Mary. It's, uh, I, I want the driver that's been vetted to pick me up. And so this is their source of authentication to even start their shift. So, David, how does somebody get to these cognitive APIs? Uh, well, they're all available at Microsoft.com slash cognitive. If you go there, then you can sign up um, for free. It's uh, all you'll need is a what we call a Microsoft account. So if, you're, if you have an out, Outlook.com email or a Live.com email, then you can just log in with that. If you don't, you can actually either create one or you can register some other email address as a Microsoft account. That's fine. Um, and once you're there, then you'll see a list of all these categories of services. There are a couple of dozen categories of services. And they're categorized by vision, speech, language, knowledge, and search. And for each one, you just subscribe to them. And subscribing to them just means now you'll, you're given a key and you can start accessing that service. And you can subscribe to them all. They're all free. They're all free to call. Um, there are some limits on how many times you can call them for free, but those limits are pretty high. They're in the tens of thousands per month. Um, I mean, I do a lot of presentations on this, and I've never come close to hitting one of those limits. 
Um, however, if you wanted to actually build a business out of it, like like Uber does, they're they're using more than ten thousand calls per month. Uh, then you can buy more, and in that case, those uh, you'll, that service will be deployed to Azure, so you get the scalability of Azure built into it as well. And you have to create an Azure account, and then you'll get charged, you know, so many cents per thousand transactions. It's uh, it varies by which service it is, but to get started, it's absolutely free. Microsoft.com/cognitive. Uh, come in there, and there's uh, there's documentation there. There is um, it's it's all just REST service, which means that we're just using web. We're making a call to a web service, and we're passing this this key this that identifies your account in the header of the service, and uh, we're passing some information like an image or a video or a bunch of text, and it, and we're getting back some JSON. JSON is just a lightweight way of formatting data, and you can parse out that JSON and see, you know, who's in the picture or what's in the picture. The the, the format of it is all documented there, and there are even samples where in browser samples where you can make the call to the web service with one of their sample pictures or paste in your own picture, uh, and it'll it'll return that data to you so you can look and see what kind of HTTP call is being made to this web service. What kind of response am I getting back? makes it really easy to develop. So if these are RESTful APIs, then we're talking about being totally platform agnostic. Exactly. So even though Microsoft developed this and Microsoft is hosting it, uh, you're, you don't have to be using any Microsoft technologies at all. It could be Java, it could be Python, PHP, whatever. You don't have to be running Windows. Anything that could make an HTTP call can tap into this. And there are actually, if you're not, um, if you're not an expert on HTTP, there are even libraries that will abstract that away for you, that, that do give you like strongly typed objects that make it just a little bit easier to code uh, to, to reach these things. And if you look at the, um, uh, the libraries are for different languages. It depends on which service. There's, some of them have Python libraries and some have, uh, I think they all have .NET libraries that are available to you. Um, uh, some have Swift libraries and so on. Uh, and then at the bottom, in the documentation at the bottom, there's actually sample code let me bring one up here. I'll bring up the computer vision one. But there's sample code, how you call it in C-sharp, how you call it in JavaScript, how you call it in Python or PHP. So there's documentation right in there that you can paste into your code and get started really quickly. Yeah, actually, the Azure machine learning functions uh, pretty much the same way, except that you're building the actual uh, machine learning yourself. Uh, but once you generate that endpoint from what you've built, you can access it from any type of application you have. Right, exactly. So you, you've been working with ML Studio, and you know the very mm -hmm. last step after you've created your algorithm and you're, you're happy with it is to publish that as a web service. Because the whole purpose of machine learning is to do predictive analytics. I think I understand how this model works. I've, I've got a good model. It's, it says that these properties are related to those properties in this way. Now I want to expose that to the world. And you expose it through a web service. And, and ML Studio is just a button click after you've done all your work. And now people can hit that endpoint, pass some data in, and get some uh, you know properties, some information back based on your model. That's basically what you're using here. That someone has hit that button. They've exposed that web service to you. And now you can take advantage of that because they've done all the the uh, machine learning work ahead of time. Um, there's computer vision is a big one. Um, it's not just one service. There's services in there to analyze an image and tells you what kind, what color is the image and what's the what is it a picture of. There's uh, recognizing celebrities. 
the video analysis in there as well. It can tell you what's, you know, what is it a video of and describe it. Do some keywords, the optical character recognition set, generating a thumbnail. Sounds easy, right? You just, you've got a picture that's a uh, thousand by eight, 800 and you want to turn it into a smaller one, you should just be able to shrink it. But it's not that simple. What if you're taking a square photograph, you wanted to turn it into a rectangle or take a portrait picture and turn it into a landscape. You want to keep whatever the main subject of that picture is in the thumbnail. And ah, uh, yes. and yeah, the, it's, is... it's hard for computers to do that sometimes. It has to analyze it and decide what the actual main part of it is. And this is, I mean, there's real practical applications. This. So how many sites are there where you upload a picture and it displays a thumbnail of the picture? And sometimes they'll say, make sure you upload this picture in it's exactly this size. That's a pain in the neck for your users. Why not just let them upload whatever size picture they want and have some back-end process generate the thumbnail of the size that makes sense on your on your site? Um, yeah, I think good, uh, Facebook and Twitter have a little bit of an issue with this. Um, when you're uploading stuff into your timeline, um, they try to, you know, anything that's really tall gets kind of clipped unless right. you're, you know, uh, clicking through to, to the details on that item. You know, you kind of get like a preview image, but a lot of right. times, like you, you end up with the the chest of the person instead of sure. the face. It's like usually, you wanted. it's usually just the center of the picture. Well, the center isn't always appropriate, you know, especially if you're a good photographer using the this rule of thirds. <laughs> probably the you know, there's a a corner of it is probably where the actual subject yeah. of the picture is. So if you have a card based UI that you're working on for an application, uh, you might want to check out that that API. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another one: is there's a uh, in the computer vision, it'll return whether or not uh, the image is adult content. So if you're allowing people to upload their own images and you're presenting those images on your site, then it uh, you're taking a chance there, you know, that they may upload something that's inappropriate for your audience, maybe, maybe pornography, for example. Uh, the way that, historically, the way we've done that is we had a human being look at each picture and make sure that it was okay and then post it. Well, that's a lot of labor. Yeah. That's a long delay. Uh, with this, we'd get uh, we get two things. We get a racy score and an adult score. I'm not really sure exactly what the difference is between the two, but uh, <laughs> generally, dirty pictures will have a high racy score and a high adult score. And maybe you'd want to have just some process to say, well, if it's uh, it's a number between zero and one. If the number is uh, less than you know 0.3, we could be pretty sure this is safe. Let's just let post that. If it's higher than point Eight, you know, kill it with fire. Don't don't even consider it. And if it's between there, maybe then put it in the queue and have a human being look at it and vet it before they actually upload it. So you can add some rules like that to it. And um, I've been showing that off for a while. And I just learned, actually this morning, that there is a, uh, what is it called, content, um, I forgot the name of it, but there's actually some uh, a, a content processing service now where you can set rules like that and prevent people from doing that. And it just basically wraps that service up in some rules that you can set, which so is kind of That's a really, nice. really interesting one uh, because a lot of sites currently have something like a button that says flag inappropriate, right? Yeah, they, uh, they crowdsource it. The problem with that is somebody's already seen it. They right. have to see it in order to hit the button. So immediately Correct. that's, you know, you, you've already failed. You're just cleaning up after the failure where exactly. this is ahead of time and you're, you're kind of uh, maybe you could you blacklist it and then somebody has to look at the failures and whitelist those and put sure. them back in the wild if there's a false yeah, positive and you, could, you could 
could still have that, uh, you know, those uh, pictures that maybe are categorized inappropriate or the, the incorrectly. Um, but this mm -hmm. model gets better and better as time goes on. You know, it's, right now it's looked at a finite number of pictures. It knows, you know, more or less what a dirty picture looks like. Uh, but it's not this... 100%. You know, this is kind of a vague thing. And, you know, of course, your version of pornography is probably different from mine. You know, as we all have our own it's a, a description. Or your version, not even that, uh, your version of what's offensive may be different from what my version of offensive is. And so there, it's yeah. kind of a fuzzy thing. But it gets better as time goes on. You know, this would be a great service for um, OS manufacturers to use on their mobile devices. Uh, so if you set up set up parental controls, not only capture images that are coming to to the user, but even from the user to to prevent you know teenagers from making mistakes with their camera and taking pictures they're not supposed to take. Uh, uh, that would yeah. be an interesting approach. I'd, I'd I'd like to see somebody like experiment this. with that idea. When I go talk to people about this, I I have a bunch of demos that I show and. Uh, in calling it from different languages and different types of applications. But um, really, the purpose of me coming to places like the Louisville.net uh, meetup that, uh, that you run is, isn't so much to teach them how to make these calls. It's to get them excited about it, to get them to, to see it and think to themselves, you know, I have an application where I could use that. You know, get the wheels turning uh, as to what the possibilities are and and showing them how easy it is to make these calls. That's that's really what I'm trying to do when I when I show this to other people is just to inspire them to to take this and with just a few lines of code make their application so much better. I'll bring up a couple of things in the language that are really interesting. The um uh, one of them is sentiment analysis. You can analyze text and say whether it's generally positive sentiment or generally negative sentiment. It's really a score between zero and one. Uh, this is really interesting if you wanted to, for example, look at the comments of your blog and seeing how do people respond to a particular blog post. Were they generally praising it or generally you know, dissing it? Um, maybe if you're a journalist and you want to look uh, at what people are doing on message boards the, the day after the presidential election. You know, what are people generally happy about it? Or are they generally sad? You know, what if they mentioned people that, that mentioned Trump? How do they speak about him? People that mentioned Clinton, how do they speak about her? Uh, what are those kind of kinds? You could probably use that to to decide what is the general sentiment of the, uh, you know, of the Internet. Uh, my, my experience is that message boards and Internet comments tend to be pretty negative. But, uh, or, but you could do the same thing for news stories. Analyze the news stories the day after the, the presidential election. See how is the news reporting. Are they reporting in generally positive tone or generally negative tone? This is really interesting stuff that, that we can use either for marketing or for social commentary. And does that come back as like a score or a negative positive value? How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's just a score between zero and one. So the closer to zero, the more negative it is. The closer to one, the more positive it is. So zero being troll... One exactly. being happy. <laughs> Professional troll. Uh, number one being uh, developer advocate. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, there, there's, there's, there's Lang Lewis is a really interesting thing that uh, uh, tool that when you can do language recognition, even if they're not saying exactly the same phrase that uh, that you're expecting. So it's it's relatively easy to say to recognize when someone is when you're expecting a phrase like turn on the lights. 
but people don't always say turn on the lights. They they may say you know make it lighter in here or or lights on or you know there's different ways of saying it. If they want to say they won't, might not just say speed up or go faster or you know there's there's ways ways of doing that. And Lewis, which is the language understanding intelligence system, I think I have that right, L-U-I-S, allows you to set up rules like that. So you can use the jargon that's most appropriate for for your application and its audience, and you can use different ways of structures, uh, structure it so that it'll recognize different ways of saying the same thing. That's really a fascinating thing. We see that a lot in bot processing. So you can integrate that, for example, with Microsoft's bot framework so that you can have online help to answer the, the simple questions. You know, online chat bots, they, they, they're, they're designed to answer the really common questions because there's, you know, those couple dozen questions to get asked over and over again. Why not automate that and then bring a human being in if it's something outside of that that it doesn't recognize? That's a huge cost savings with minimal uh, inconvenience to a user. Yeah, there's so many opportunities for developers these days. Uh, you don't have your standard business logic layer if you think like an end-tiered application. It doesn't really exist anymore. You know, like you said, you've got bots and uh, you've got cognitive services, you've got machine learning, you've got all these APIs that you can tap into in inside that uh, that business tier these days. Very interesting times. Right. Yeah, and we're moving towards a a world. I think you're you're, you're implying this where as a developer, uh, we don't have to create every service ourselves. We can call into services that already exist and and bring them together to build something great. So, David, let's uh, let's wrap things up here. Um, I appreciate you uh, making some time for the show today. This is all really cool uh, stuff that I particularly enjoy myself because I'm, I'm kind of a science fiction nerd and, uh, and you know, what developer is it these days? But uh, <laughs> a lot of this stuff was science fiction a few years ago. Now we're seeing, um, you know, things that are easy enough to use where, you know, they were only limited to data scientists before and now developers of every type, any platform can get a hold of them. Um, I appreciate oh, you coming on and talking yeah, about it. it. It's it, just it really that's, fun. A, that's, that's the key. It democratizes machine learning and artificial intelligence. It brings it to the, us mere mortals. So, is there any? Are, do you do you have a blog? Do you you obviously? Um, I've mentioned Technology and Friends, which is a show uh, that you do. Uh, uh, do you have a blog that you want to talk about? I do, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, uh, I have a blog. It's at my name, davidgr.com. And on there, you can see what I'm writing about. Uh, sometimes it's technical articles. Sometimes it's science fiction book reviews. <laughs> sometimes it's just where I'm speaking next. Uh, I recently added to that a list of the central U.S. tech events, and I've got a few dozen of them on here. Um, hopefully, I'll, I'll keep that up to date and um, add to that as I learn about more of them. And um, uh, and then I also technology and friends is available on Channel Nine. Uh, I can send you a link to that as well. Channel Nine slash blogs slash oh sorry, Channel Nine at msdn dot com slash blog slash technology and friends. Just it rolls off the tongue. <laughs> uh, uh, but I usually post those episodes on my blog as well, and those are interviews with smart people in the community. Uh, you've been on there once. Hope to get you back again. And um, uh, uh, what else? I live a very transparent life. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's my name, David Giard. Uh, happy to engage you there as well. And you can find me at, at local 
code camps and community events all over the world. Awesome. It, it, I'm looking forward to uh, meeting up with you in person again soon. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll do some technology and friends again. And again, appreciate you making time for the show. We'll post all the show notes at developer.telerik.com. Uh, so we'll put in some links to your blog and your show um, and uh, cognitive services so people can check those out. And uh, make sure you like us on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, and all of the social media outlets. Share the show. Uh, appreciate everybody listening in. Uh, David, once again, thank you, sir. Thank you.